Chapter 11, Part 1 of Ten Days That Shook the World. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Richard Beck. Ten Days That Shook the World by John Reed. Chapter 11. The Conquest of Power. See Appendix 11, Section 1. Declaration of the Rights of the People of Russia. See Appendix 11, Section 2. The First Congress of Soviets, in June of this year, proclaimed the right of the peoples of Russia to self-determination. The Second Congress of Soviets, in November last, confirmed this inalienable right of the peoples of Russia more decisively and definitely. Executing the will of these Congresses, the Council of People's Commissars has resolved to establish as a basis for its activity in the question of nationalities the following principles. 1. The equality and sovereignty of the peoples of Russia. 2. The right of the peoples of Russia to free self-determination, even to the point of separation and the formation of an independent state. 3. The abolition of any and all national and national religious privileges and disabilities. 4. The free development of national minorities and ethnographic groups inhabiting the territory of Russia. Decrees will be prepared immediately upon the formation of a commission on nationalities. In the name of the Russian Republic, People's Commissar for Nationalities, Yusyov de Justaskavili Stalin. President of the Council of People's Commissars, V. Yulenov Lenin. The Central Rada at Kiev immediately declared Ukraine as an independent republic, as did the government of Finland through the Senate at Helsingfors. Independent governments sprang up in Siberia and the Caucasus. The Polish Chief Military Committee swiftly gathered together the Polish troops in the Russian army, abolished their committees and established an iron discipline. All these governments and movements had two characteristics in common. They were controlled by the propertied classes, and they feared and detested Bolshevism. Steadily, amid the chaos of shocking change, the Council of People's Commissars hammered at the scaffolding of the socialist order. Decree on social insurance, on workers' control, regulations for the lost land committees, abolition of ranks and titles, abolition of courts and the creation of people's tribunals. See Appendix 11, Section 3. Army after army, fleet after fleet, sent deputations, joyfully to greet the new government of the people. In front of Solney, one day, I saw a ragged regiment just come up from the trenches. The soldiers were drawn up before the great gates, thin and grey-faced, looking up at the building as if God were in it. Some pointed out the imperial eagles over the door, laughing. Red guards came to mount guard. All the soldiers turned to look, curiously, as if they had heard of them, but never seen them. They laughed good-naturedly, and pressed out of line to slap the red guards on the back, with half-joking, half-admiring remarks. The provisional government was no more. On November 15th, in all the churches of the capital, the priests stopped praying for it. 
but as Lenin himself told the Teiskar, that was only the beginning of the conquest of power. Deprived of arms, the opposition, which still controlled the economic life of the country, settled down to organized disorganization, with all the Russian genius for cooperative action to obstruct, cripple, and discredit the Soviets. The strike of government employees was well organized, financed by the banks and commercial establishments. Every move of the Bolsheviki to take over the government apparatus was resisted. Trotsky went to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. The functionaries refused to recognize him, locked themselves in, and when the doors were forced, resigned. He demanded the keys of the archives. Only when he brought workmen to force the locks were they given up. Then it was discovered that Neratov, former assistant foreign minister, had disappeared with the secret treaties. Shalapinkov tried to take possession of the Ministry of Labour. It was bitterly cold, and there was no one to light the fires. Of all the hundreds of employees, not one would show him where the office of the minister was. Alexandra Kolontai appointed the 13th of November Commissar of the Public Welfare. The Department of Charities and Public Institutions was welcomed with a strike of all but 40 of the functionaries in the ministry. Immediately the poor of the great cities, the inmates of institutions, were plunged in miserable want. Delegations of starving cripples, of orphans with blue pinched faces, besieged the building. With tears streaming down her face, Kolontai arrested the strikers until they should deliver the keys of the office in the safe. When she got the keys, however, it was discovered that the former minister, Countess Panina, had gone off with the funds, which she refused to surrender except on the order of the Constituent Assembly. See Appendix 11, Section 4. In the Ministry of Agriculture, the Ministry of Supplies, the Ministry of Finance, similar incidents occurred, and the employees, summoned to return or forfeit their positions and their pensions, either stayed away or returned to sabotage. Almost all the intelligentsia being anti-Bolshevik, there was nowhere for the Soviet government to recruit new staffs. The private banks remained stubbornly closed, with the back door open for speculators. When Bolshevik commissars entered, the clerks left, secreting the books and removing the funds. All the employees of the state banks struck, except the clerks in charge of the vaults and the manufacture of money, who refused all demands from Smolny and privately paid out huge sums to the Committee for Salvation and the City Duma. Twice a commissar, with a company of Red Guards, came formally to insist upon the delivery of large sums for government expenses. The first time, the City Duma members and the Menshevik and Socialist revolutionary leaders were present in imposing numbers, and spoke so gravely of the consequences that the commissar was frightened. The second time he arrived with a warrant, which he proceeded to read aloud and in due form. But someone called his attention to the fact that it had no date and no seal, and the traditional Russian respect for documents forced him again to withdraw. The officials of the Credit Chancery destroyed their books, so that all record of the financial relations of Russia with foreign countries was lost. The supply committees, the administrations of the municipal-owned public utilities, either did not work at all or sabotaged. 
and when the Bolsheviki, compelled by the desperate needs of the city population, attempted to help or control the public service, all the employees went on strike immediately, and the Duma flooded Russia with telegrams about Bolshevik violation of municipal autonomy. At military headquarters and in the offices of the Ministries of War and Marine, where the old officials had consented to work, the army committees and the high command blocked the Soviets in every way possible, even to the extent of neglecting the troops at the front. The Vixel was hostile, refusing to transport Soviet troops. Every troop train that left Petrograd was taken out by force, and railway officials had to be arrested each time. Whereupon the Vixel threatened an immediate general strike unless they were released. Smolny was plainly powerless. The newspapers said that all the factories of Petrograd must shut down for lack of fuel in three weeks. The Vixel announced that the trains must cease running by December 1st. There was food for three days only in Petrograd, and no more coming in, and the army on the front was starving. The Committee for Salvation, the various central committees, sent word all over the country exhorting the population to ignore the government decrees, and the Allied embassies were either coldly indifferent or openly hostile. The opposition newspapers, suppressed one day and reappearing next morning under new names, heaped bitter sarcasm on the new regime. See Appendix 11, Section 5. Even Novaya Zizin characterized it as a combination of demagoguery and impotence. From day to day, it said, the government of the People's Commissars sinks deeper and deeper into the mire of superficial haste. Having easily conquered the power, the Bolsheviki cannot make use of it. Powerless to direct the existing mechanism of government, they are unable at the same time to create a new one which might work easily and freely according to the theories of social experimenters. Just a while ago the Bolsheviki hadn't enough men to run their growing party, a work above all speakers and writers. Where then are they going to find trained men to execute the diverse and complicated functions of government? The new government acts and threatens. It sprays the country with decrees, each one more radical and more socialist than the last. But in this exhibition of socialism on paper, more likely designed for the stupefaction of our descendants, there appears neither the desire nor the capacity to solve the immediate problems of the day. Meanwhile, the Zikhal's conference to form a new government continued to meet night and day. Both sides had already agreed in principle to the basis of the government. The composition of the People's Council was being discussed. The cabinet was tentatively chosen, with Tchernov as premier. The Bolsheviki were admitted in large minority, but Lenin and Trotsky were barred. The central committees of the Menshevik and Socialist Revolutionary Parties, the Executive Committee of the Peasant Soviets, resolved that, although unalterably opposed to the criminal politics of the Bolsheviki, they would, in order to halt the fratricidal bloodshed, not oppose their entrance into the People's Council. The flight of Kerensky, however, and the astounding success of the Soviets everywhere, altered the situation. On the 16th, in a meeting of the Ta-i-Ka, 
the left socialist revolutionaries insisted that the Bolsheviki should form a coalition government with the other socialist parties. Otherwise, they would withdraw from the Military Revolutionary Committee and the Tsaykar. Malkin said, The news from Moscow, where our comrades are dying on both sides of the barricades, determines us to bring up once more the question of organization of power, and it is not only our right to do so, but our duty. We have won the right to sit with the Bolsheviki here within the walls of Smolny Institute, and to speak from this tribune. After the bitter internal party struggle, we shall be obliged, if you refuse to compromise, to pass to open battle outside. We must propose to the democracy terms of an acceptable compromise. After a recess to consider this ultimatum, the Bolsheviki returned with a revolution, read by Kamenev. The Tsaykar considers it necessary that there enter into the government representatives of all the socialist parties composing the Soviets of workers, soldiers and peasants' deputies who recognize the conquests of the revolution of November 7th. That is to say, the establishment of a government of Soviets, the decrees on peace, land, workers' control over industry, and the arming of the working class. The Tsika therefore resolved to propose negotiations concerning the constitution of the government to all parties of the Soviet, and insists upon the following conditions as a basis. The government is responsible to Tsika. The Tsika shall be enlarged to 150 members. To these 150 delegates of the Soviets of Workers' and Soldiers' Deputies shall be added 75 delegates of the Provincial Soviets of Peasants' Deputies, 80 from the Front Organizations of the Army and Navy, 40 from the Trades' Unions, 25 from the various All-Russian Unions in proportion to their importance, 10 from the Vigzel and 5 from the Post and Telegraph Workers and 50 delegates from the socialist groups in the Petrograd City Duma. In the ministry itself, at least one-half the portfolios must be reserved to the Bolsheviki. The ministries of labour, interior and foreign affairs must be given to the Bolsheviki. The command of the garrisons of the Petrograd and Moscow must remain in the hands of the delegates of the Moscow and Petrograd Soviets. The government undertakes the systematic arming of the workers of all Russia. It is resolved to insist upon the candidature of comrades Lenin and Trotsky. Kamenev explained, The so-called People's Council, he said, proposed by the conference, would consist of about 420 members, of which about 150 would be Bolsheviki. Besides, there would be delegates from the counter-revolutionary old Seika, 100 members chosen by the municipal Dumas Kornilovtsi, all 100 delegates from the peasants Soviets appointed by Aksentiev, and 80 from the old army committees who no longer represent the soldier masses. We refuse to admit the old Seika and also the representatives of the municipal Dumas. The delegates from the peasants' Soviets will be elected by the Congress of Peasants, which we have called, and which we will at the same time elect a new executive committee. 
The proposal to exclude Lenin and Trotsky is a proposal to decapitate our party, and we do not accept it. And finally, we see no necessity for a People's Council anyway. The Soviets are open to all socialist parties, and the Tsika represents them in their real proportions among the masses. Karolin, for the left socialist revolutionaries, declared that his party would vote for the Bolshevik resolution, reserving the right to modify certain details, such as the representation of the peasants, and demanding that the Ministry of Agriculture be reserved for the left socialist revolutionaries. This was agreed to. Later, at a meeting of the Petrograd Soviet, Trotsky answered a question about the formation of the new government. I don't know anything about that. I am not taking part in the negotiations. However, I don't think that they are of great importance. That night there was great uneasiness in the conference. Delegates of the city Duma withdrew. But at Smolny itself, in the ranks of the Bolshevik party, a formidable opposition to Lenin's policy was growing. On the night of November 17th, the great hall was packed and ominous for the meeting of the Zika. Larin, Bolshevik, declared that the moment of the elections to the Constituent Assembly approached, and it was time to do away with political terrorism. The measures taken against the freedom of the press should be modified. They had their reason during the struggle, but now they have no further excuse. The press should be free, except for appeals to riot and insurrection. In a storm of hisses and hoots from his own party, Larin offered the following resolution. The decree of the Council of People's Commissars concerning the press is herewith repealed. Measures of political repression can only be employed subject to the decision of a special tribunal elected by the CEK proportionally to the strength of the different parties represented, and this tribunal shall have the right also to reconsider measures of repression already taken. This was met by a thunder of applause, not only from the left socialist revolutionaries, but also from a part of the Bolsheviki. Avanesov, for the Leninites, hastily proposed that the question of the press be postponed until after some compromise between the socialist parties had been reached, overwhelmingly voted down. The revolution which is now being accomplished, went on Avanesov, has not hesitated to attack private property, and it is as private property that we must examine the question of the press. Thereupon he read the official Bolshevik resolution. The suppression of the bourgeois press was dictated not only by purely military needs in the course of the insurrection and for the checking of counter-revolutionary action, but it is also necessary as a measure of transition towards the establishment of a new regime with regard to the presse regime under which the capitalist owners of printing presses and of paper cannot be the all-powerful and exclusive manufacturers of public opinion. We must further proceed to the confiscation of private printing plants and supplies of paper, which should become the property of the Soviets, both in the capital and the provinces, 
so that the political parties and groups can make use of the facilities of printing in proportion to the actual strength of the ideas they represent, in other words, proportionally to the number of their constituents. The re-establishment of the so-called freedom of the press, the simple return of printing presses and paper to the capitalists, poisoners of the mind of the people, this would be an inadmissible surrender to the will of capital, a giving up of one of the most important conquests of the revolution, in other words. It would be a measure of unquestionably counter-revolutionary character. Proceeding from the above, the Tsika categorically rejects all propositions aiming at the re-establishment of the old regime in the domain of the press, and unequivocally supports the point of view of the Council of People's Commissars on this question, against pretensions and ultimatums dictated by petty bourgeois prejudices or by the evident surrender to the interests of the counter-revolutionary bourgeoisie. The reading of this resolution was interrupted by ironical shouts from the left socialist revolutionaries, and bursts of indignation from the insurgent Bolsheviki. Karolin was on his feet, protesting. Three weeks ago the Bolsheviki were the most ardent defenders of the freedom of the press. The arguments in this resolution suggest singularly the point of view of the old black hundreds and the censors of the Tsarist regime for they also talked of poisoners of the mind of the people. Trotsky spoke at length in favour of the resolution. He distinguished between the press during the civil war and the press after the victory. During civil war, the right to use violence belongs only to the oppressed. Cries of, who's the oppressed now, cannibal? The victory over our adversaries is not yet achieved and the newspapers are arms in their hands. In these conditions, the closing of the newspapers is a legitimate measure of defence. Then passing to the question of the press after the victory, Trotsky continued. The attitude of socialists on the question of freedom of the press should be the same as their attitude towards the freedom of business. The rule of democracy which is being established in Russia demands that the domination of the press by private property must be abolished, just as the domination of industry by private property. The power of the Soviet should confiscate all printing presses. Cries, confiscate the printing shop of Pravda. The monopoly of the press by the bourgeoisie must be abolished. Otherwise, it isn't worthwhile for us to take the power. Each group of citizens should have access to print shops and paper. The ownership of print type and of paper belongs first to the workers and peasants, and only afterwards to the bourgeois parties, which are in a minority. The passing of the power into hands of the Soviets will bring about a radical transformation of the essential conditions of existence and this transformation will necessarily be evident in the press. If we are going to nationalise the banks, can we then tolerate the financial journals? The old regime must die. That must be understood once and for all. Applause and angry cries. Caroline declared that the Tseika had no right to pass upon this important question, which should be left to a special committee. Again, passionately, he demanded that the press be free. 
then lenin calm unemotional his forehead wrinkled as he spoke slowly choosing his words each sentence falling like a hammer blow the civil war is not yet finished the enemy is still with us consequently it is impossible to abolish the measures of repression against the press we bolsheviki have always said that when we reached a position of power we would close the bourgeois press to tolerate the bourgeois newspapers would mean to cease being a socialist when one makes a revolution one cannot mark time one must always go forward or go back he who now talks about the freedom of the press goes backward and halts our headlong course towards socialism we have thrown off the yoke of capitalism just as the first revolution threw off the yoke of czarism if the first revolution had the right to suppress the monarchist papers then we have the right to suppress the bourgeois press it is impossible to separate the question of the freedom of the press from the other questions of the class struggle we have promised to close these newspapers and we shall do it the immense majority of the people is with us now that the insurrection is over we have absolutely no desire to suppress the papers of the other socialist parties except in as much as they appeal to the armed insurrection or to disobedience to the socialist government however we shall not permit them under the pretense of freedom of the socialist press to obtain through the secret support of the bourgeoisie a monopoly of printing presses ink and paper these essentials must become the property of the soviet government and be apportioned first of all to the socialist parties in strict proportion to their voting strength then the vote the resolution of larin and the left socialist revolutionaries was defeated by thirty one to twenty two the lenin motion was carried by thirty four to twenty four among the minority were the bolsheviki ryazanov and lozonsky who declared that it was impossible for them to vote against any restriction on the freedom of the press upon this the left socialist revolutionaries declared they could no longer be responsible for what was being done and withdrew from the military revolutionary committee and all other positions of executive responsibility five members nogin rykov milutin Teodorovich and Siabnikov resigned from the Council of People's Commissars, declaring, We are in favour of a socialist government composed of all the parties in the Soviets. We consider that only the creation of such a government can possibly guarantee the results of the heroic struggle of the working class and the revolutionary army. Outside of that there remains only one way, the constitution of a purely Bolshevik government by means of political terrorism. This last is the road taken by the Council of People's Commissars. We cannot and will not follow it. We see that this leads directly to the elimination from political life of many proletarian organizations, to the establishment of an irresponsible regime, and to the destruction of the revolution and the country. We cannot take the responsibility for such a policy, and we renounce before the Tsai-Ika our function as people's commissars. Other commissars, 
without resigning their positions, signed the declaration. Ryazanov, Derbychev of the press department, Arbuzov of the government printing plant, Yureniev of the Red Guard, Fyodorov of the Commissariat of Labour, and Larin, Secretary of the Section of Elaboration of Decrees. At the same time, Kamenyev, Rykov, Milutin, Zinoviev, and Nogin resigned from the Central Committee of the Bolshevik Party, making public their reasons. The constitution of such a government, composed of all the parties of the Soviet, is indispensable to prevent a new flow of blood, the coming famine, the destruction of the revolution by the Kaledinists, to assure the convocation of the Constituent Assembly at the proper time and to apply effectively the program adopted by the Congress of Soviets. We cannot accept the responsibility for the disastrous policy of the Central Committee carried on against the will of an enormous majority of the proletariat and the soldiers who are eager to see the rapid end of the bloodshed between the different political parties of the democracy. We renounce our title as members of the Central Committee in order to be able to say openly our opinion to the masses of workers and soldiers. We leave the Central Committee at the moment of victory. We cannot calmly look on while the policy of the chiefs of the Central Committee leads towards the loss of the fruits of victory and the crushing of the proletariat. The masses of the workers, the soldiers of the garrison, stirred restlessly, sending their delegations to Smolny, to the conference for formation of the new government, where the break in the ranks of the Bolsheviki caused the liveliest joy. But the answer of the Leninites was swift and ruthless. Shlapnikov and Teodorovich submitted to party discipline and returned to their posts. Kamenev was stripped of his powers as president of the Seika, and Zverdlov elected in his place. Zinoviev was deposed as president of the Petrograd Soviet. On the morning of the 5th, Pravda contained a ferocious proclamation to the people of Russia, written by Lenin which was printed in hundreds of thousands of copies, posted on the walls everywhere and distributed over the face of Russia. The Second All-Russian Congress of Soviets gave the majority to the Bolshevik Party. Only a government formed by this party can therefore be a Soviet government, and it is known to all that the Central Committee of the Bolshevik Party a few hours before the formation of the new government and before proposing the list of its members to the All-Russian Congress of Soviets, invited to its meeting three of the most eminent members of the Left Socialist Revolutionary Group, comrades Kamkov, Spiro and Kerolin, and asked them to participate in the new government. We regret infinitely that the invited comrades refused. We consider their refusal admissible for the revolutionists and champions of the working class. We are willing at any time to include the left socialist revolutionaries in the government, but we declare that, as the party of the majority at the second All-Russian Congress of Soviets, we are entitled and bound before the people to form a government. Comrades! Several members of the Central Committee of our party and the Council of People's Commissars Kamenev, Zinoviev, Nogin, Rykov, 
Milutin and a few others left yesterday, November 17th, the Central Committee of our party, and the last three, the Council of People's Commissars. The comrades who left us acted like deserters, because they not only abandoned the posts entrusted to them, but also disobeyed the direct instructions of the Central Committee of our party, to the effect that they should await the decisions of the Petrograd and Moscow party organizations before retiring. We blame decisively such desertion. We are firmly convinced that all conscious workers, soldiers and peasants belonging to our party or sympathizing with it will also disapprove of the behavior of the deserters. Remember, comrades, that two of these deserters, Kameniev and Zinoviev, even before the uprising in Petrograd, appeared as deserters and strike-breakers by voting at the decisive meeting of the Central Committee, October 23, 1917, against the insurrection, and even after the resolution passed by the Central Committee, they continued their campaign at a meeting of the party workers. But the great impulse of the masses, the great heroism of millions of workers, soldiers and peasants, in Moscow, Petrograd, at the front, in the trenches, in the villages, pushed aside the deserters as a railway train scatters sawdust. Shame upon those who are of little faith, hesitate, who doubt, who allow themselves to be frightened by the bourgeoisie, or who succumb before the cries of the latter's direct or indirect accomplices. There is not a shadow of hesitation in the masses of Petrograd, Moscow and the rest of Russia. We shall not submit to any ultimatums from small groups of intellectuals which are not followed by the masses, which are practically only supported by Kornolivists, Savinkovists, Yunkers, and so forth. End of chapter 11, part 1. Recording by Richard Beck.